All right, episode 90, Inappropriate Earl. You know, it's not often I start off a podcast with an on-air apology, but I met this guest the other night at the Comedy Store during Roast Battle. Right before Roast Battle, many of you know I play the house racist, house hater character. I'm very nervous before the show because I have to say some things that some people might think I mean, which I don't, to satirical character and uh, i saw this guest walking through the hallway and i instantly knew who he was i introduced myself he was very humbled and uh very respectful of the comedy world and we go upstairs the first battle was a uh bout between two uh roasters one was dressed in a ufc like uniform the other was dressed as a boxer yeah they took that serious well, it's, it's roast battles, no joke, Sam. I could tell. I was, I was, I was, uh, I was thrown aback by the by like how intense that thing really gets. It's brutal, uh, and I got so excited because I thought, "Wow, this is a great way to introduce Sam, give him a little shout out." And I, <laughs> I get up, I give him this great build up. Hey guys, you guys are dressed like fighters. We have a guy in the crowd right now who is an actual fighter. He was gonna fight Alistair Overeem. He's legit guy it's a standing room only crowd that the anticipation for who i am about to introduce is at a fever pitch i get up out of my seat and go guys put your hands together for one the only one of my favorite ufc fighters (laughs) sam stout oh Oh, and i instantly thought (laughs) shit his last name's hoger (laughs) it is sam hoger and uh, Sam, I owe you an apology. Hey, no worries, no worries, no worries. I mean, it was a great time, and I mean, we, we we got we got we got the first part off. We got the Sam part, right? But I get uh, <laughs> and your middle name is Earl. So how yeah. could I get your last? I just got. It's such a nerve wracking. Uh, I don't know how it's like right before you get into an octagon, but I imagine it's how I feel right before I start roast battle. It's nerve wracking. It is. It is like the one thing I noticed, like before you go into the cage to fight, you have this thing that I like to call like your moment of truth where you really discover who you are because you only get to have those moments before you actually feel like something is putting you at risk or in harm's way. And it's the purest moment of being alive because all the, because all the nerves in the world are upon you. All the eyes in the world are upon you. And once you cross that threshold into the cage, nothing matters other than your objective, which in truth lets you become who you really are for just a brief moment of time. Now, you might be the smartest guy I've ever had on this podcast. I don't know about that. Well, I do. If you look at uh, the previous 89 episodes, not a lot of uh, brainiacs on this. I've uh, been humbled and honored to have UFC legend Don Fry on. Oh, Don's a character. Uh, I love that guy. He was one, probably my first celebrity guest. It's Don Fry. It's Don Fry. It's Don Fry. I love that guy. That guy is old school tough. I love him. Only guest to ever take a cell phone call in the middle of the podcast, but... Uh, Sam, I have no uh, formal MMA training. Right, right. What was I supposed to tell Don Fry? Hang up the phone. Oh man, that that that. I don't know if you'd want to say that to him. He, he might he might smokers hack you. He might hit you with a smokers hack. Well, I have no fighting experience. <laughs> period. So I have a lot of respect for what you do or did. You're now an actor. We'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess. You know, for the fans who might not know of your past, you were 
on what I think is probably to this day the most influential season of the show, The Ultimate Fighter. Yeah, we I was on season one. I had a privilege to be a part of that cast, and we uh, we made the sport what it is today. Sam Hoger and everybody else who was on. That's so weird t- talking about myself in third person. But that's so, why you're here. But no, the um, but no, me and everybody else in that cast, we propelled the sport into what it is today, and now it is a a machine. It is awesome to see like, you know, my friends, Dana White and the Fertitas and Donna and Joe Silva. It's great to see them all doing really well because, you know, we contributed to, you know, to their success. And I love seeing my friends do well. I mean, that's one of the things that I don't know, makes me the kind of friend I am. I love seeing my friends like really succeed, you know, and I always try to propel them forward. So it's really good. Because at the, right before, uh, the Ultimate Fighter debuted. I mean, I, I think people know the story. Uh, you know, the UFC was basically hemorrhaging money, and I think they were uh, $2 million in the hole. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, they were about to file bankruptcy, or they were going to try to find somebody to buy it, or they were going to try to sell the brand off, but... Oh, excuse me. It's really, um, you know, it's really, it's really nice to, like, you know, partake in you know, in their success. And because, you know, I've, I've come up as a martial artist since I was a child in Central America. I used to fight, I used to do uh, karate down there, believe it or not, when I was like six years old, after we moved over there from Germany, I didn't come to the United States. Like I tell everybody till I was 13. So I find that that's why my personality is probably not similar to most people's. But, um, the, uh, when I came to the United States, you know, I started pursuing karate and then went into Brazilian jiu-jitsu when the UFC happened. And I saw everything that, you know, Hoist did. And, uh, after that, I started fighting on the underground when John McCain made it illegal. He called it human cockfighting. You know, I always wondered, like, like how would you, like, fight with your cocks, you know? Well, <laughs> uh, this podcast does take place in West Hollywood. Oh. <laughs> so there is cockfighting. Like, like how, who, who would be the winner? Is it the first person who goes limp, I guess, or, like, well, starts to soften up? Uh, if you've ever seen a Lexington steel porn, he would be like the uh, Ronda Rousey of <laughs> cockfighting. I mean, I got a big dick. <laughs> oh, Not man. that you care about that. Whoa. You probably whoa, don't. Whoa. You're crazy. Well, listen, I don't know if you've ever seen Czech Congo naked, but just on looks alone. Jesus Christ. Oh, my gosh. You're crazy. So then... um. After while he was doing that, I was able to fight on the underground. And um, now, when you say underground, like I instantly go to like Jean Claude Van Damme's Bloodsport or or Lionheart. Exactly. Believe it or not, that's a lot what it was like. Um, I can tell you a story. There was um, when I was in college, I was like seventeen or eighteen years old. Um, I was down at LSU. I had just finished military school, and uh, actually, I'll tell you a story about military school before I tell you this one. Please. I was in military school, and uh, one of the things that the the students would do is that they would bring in uh, all the rats. They're called recruits at training. I was at the New Mexico Military Institute because I had received the uh, senatorial nomination to go to West Point. And when I was there, all of the students would come... Well, not all the students, like, like the higher ranking students, since I was a rat, I didn't have any rank. The higher ranks would all kind of congregate in this big room. And when they did, they would get, you know, the like big time football players and the athletes that were all a part of the, all, all a part of the, the cadre to get in there. And I remember they gloved me up and they said, Sam, we want you to fight this guy in this big black muscular football player walks in. I'm a little skinny, like 16 year old kid. And I'm looking at him like, I'll kick his ass. I don't think my balls dropped by that point, but I was still like, 
I'm going to beat his ass, you know? So I put on these gloves and I get in there to start fighting with this guy. And like, we're swinging for the fences, you know? And, and since I'm Panamanian, like one of the things that Panamanians have is like, you know, we have this like machismo to our culture. And, um, if a fight happens, you know, nine times out of 10, if you see a Panamanian guy, they're not running away from the fight. They're usually running into it. So I'm sitting in there swinging with this guy. And you know, this guy's so much bigger than me. I'm a little skinny 16 year old. He's probably like a 26, 25 year old man. Boom. He hits me. And like, I remember like my legs went stiff. I fell back down and hit my head on the bunk bed. And like my body was like completely locked up. And I remember getting up and I was like breathing deep, trying to like get air back into my lungs so I could continue fighting. And, you know, we, you know, we finished scrapping it out. And then like at the end of it, I remember I went back to my dorm and like, like you have like a, re a, a reality, like a moment where you finally like understand who you are after you finally get like knocked out because like, okay, you know, you're human, but you find out who you are like at that moment, because when you stand up, if you want to keep fighting, you know, you're a fighter. If you stand up, and you're like, whoa, this is too much. This is not for me. You get scared and that fear hits you. Then you, then, you know, maybe that's not inside you. And there's nothing wrong with that. That means you're probably normal. You know, most guys, you know, they don't, after they get knocked out, they typically don't want to fight again. I found out at that point that I kind of liked it a lot more. Well, I mean, I know that was one of the knocks on uh, Brock Lesnar was, uh, he, oh yeah, good he point. Seemed, I forgot about. That. I'm not knocking him. I kick my ass. Uh, but he, uh, it seemed that uh, I think after the Overeem fight, uh, when uh, he went down pretty hard after the liver kick, it was like, oh, he doesn't like to get hit. Well, who? I mean, I, is that really a weak? Who likes getting kicked in the liver by Overeem? <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's a weakness. Um, I'd or is it? No, I mean, I'd agree with you. Like, I don't think anybody likes it. But I think the thing that distinguishes people who are fighters and people who aren't, not to say that Brock Lesnar isn't a fighter, he's a great fighter because anybody who fights is a fighter at that point in time and they are a fighter, but the mindset of, I, I guess I should distinguish between fighter and warrior because a fighter, you know, they fight, it's a sport, it's fun. A warrior, even when they take that kind of punishment, it doesn't break who they are because at the end of the day, when you go to sleep and you wake up, you're still a warrior, you know, and you understand that and you live and die by that. And being that you understand that part of yourself, it brings a certain, I mean, when you, when you experience it, yeah, it sucks. And yes, it's embarrassing. And, but at the same time, that moment of truth that you have had and that experience lets you become a better warrior and a better fighter because that's who you are. It's not, it's not a matter of whether or not you win or lose. Cause they say the greatest fighter in the world is the one who has lost every single fight. He's lost 50 fights, but he's coming for 51. And every time you get a little bit better because you discover more about yourself, that's your real warrior, you know? That sounds like Bob Sapp's record. He's just <laughs> Bob Sapp. I don't know about Bob Sapp because I don't... I, I, think, I think Bob Sapp is into the payday thing at this point. But I mean, that's the guy who doesn't seem to like to get hit, but... Uh you know, hey. but I don't, I don't see him trying to learn to try to get better to like, you know, improve himself as a, you know, as a warrior or as a martial artist. I see him more so as like, if he can dominate you, he will, but he's not, uh, he's not, I, I don't think he's in it to try to like, you know, discover a better portion of himself in reference to the martial arts and in reference to fighting. I think he's more so there doing it 
you know, for money and for, you know, for entertainment purposes and to, you know, to kind of build his brand. And there's nothing wrong with that because I mean, people have different motivations. You know, there's some purist martial artists like, uh, like the guy that I fought Machida. I mean, like, wow. I mean, that guy's, that guy's a martial artist. I mean, yes, he's making a living doing it and yes, he's doing what he loves. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think even if they weren't paying him, I think it's still, I think, okay, here's a, here's like one of my coming up. I had a lot of people that I looked up to like in reference to martial arts, everybody has, of course, Hoist and, you know, because he's such a, you know, and, and, uh, you know, he's such a figure, but like, there's one guy when I was coming up, I remember I was at, a, I think I was at a LSU and I was training under Chris, uh, Seifert. He's part of a uh, Carlson Gracie's team, or he was under Honey Salas, who's part of Carlson Gracie back in Brazil. And, um, I remember like we would talk about Jeremy Horn and he was a member of the military fighting systems. Now get this. Now, me and Jeremy never got along because I went to go train at the Militich Fighting Systems and our personalities didn't work, but it still didn't stop me from admiring, you know, who he was and what he's done and the contributions he made to the sport. But get this, Jeremy would literally, now I can't remember what week this was, but he would literally fight every single fight he God possibly could. Like there was one week that I remember them talking about, like on Friday, I think he fought in a UFC on Saturday. He drove to Canada and fought in a WEC on Sunday. He fought, or no, he'd fought in the WEC in the afternoon, drove to another event, fought at night. And then he did. And then he turned around and fought in a UFC like the next week, right after that. Like he had four fights. Like if you look up his record, there's only one guy who has a more impressive record than him. Like that now, Jeremy Horn, he's, he's, he said, yeah, I stopped, I stopped like when I talked to him, like when I first got to camp, he said, yeah, Sam, you know, I stopped counting my fights after I fought a hundred men, but I started talking to other people in the camp and they're like, Sam, Jeremy has had easily over three, 400 fights and a lot of them aren't documented. Now there's another guy who I had the privilege of meeting. His name is Travis Fulton. Now, Travis Fulton is the Iron Man of MMA. Like if you ever, like, do you remember that movie with Vin Diesel? The one where he's like a tough guy and he's a... That's oh, all of them. Oh, yeah. That's right. No, no, no. <laughs> the one that's where, like asking me if I know the black basketball player. <laughs> There's triple X. No, no, no. The, the one where Vin Diesel was uh, like, he's, he's, I think it's like, like Hitman or, si- or like... He's where coming. he goes after the guy who killed his, mo- uh, killed his wife. Okay. Do you remember this, this, this speech that he gave? He goes, 500 men. Until you fight 500 men, you don't know, like, you know, and then eventually you start fighting. Like the story, the point of the story was that he said, you, when you're a kid, you want to find out what it takes to be a tough guy. So I think his father in the story had told him you need to fight 500 men. And then he said, there came a point in time where you're fighting so much and you're fighting so many people that 500 just becomes a number. And then eventually you find out the fighter is just who you are because you're just doing it so much. It becomes in essence, who you are, right? Uh, just, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeremy Horn, 118 fights. 118 fights. Registered. Registered. 91 wins. 91 um, wins. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, A few losses. Now, oh, yeah, now, now, now look at this. Now, look up this guy. Travis Fulton. As a matter of fact, he fought Jeremy Horn like three times, I think. All right, you keep talking. I'll so, keep looking up. So now, Travis Fulton... Now, these are there is another guy from Iowa... Another guy who I really admired, I met. He's a great guy. But this guy, 
This guy has beat title contenders and title belt holders, and he has fought the best in the world. And he's, he, I mean, his record is insane. Uh, 62 uh, fights that they know of. Uh, no, actually, I, I take that back. 62 boxing matches. I was about to say, um, that sounds like it's significantly less MMA fights because he's had a lot of MMA fights. 312 uh, MMA fights, 250 wins, uh, 92 by knockout. And so... And a few losses, but I mean, you, uh, you see, good. you see my point. You see my point. That is legitimately a guy, and he's fought way more than that. That guy right there is legitimately a guy who could give that speech that Vin Diesel gave in that movie where he said, 500 men." He has fought pretty close to, I'd imagine, five hundred men. And he, I mean, you look at some of the people on his record, like Forrest Griffin. He fought Cabbage Corriera and beat oh, him. Cabbage. I mean, Cabbage was a beast. I mean, Tim Sylvia, my other teammate, beat him and did really, really well. I see. He was. Uh, I have to get this out. He was a second uh, degree black belt in American Kempo, which reminds me of that movie, The Perfect Weapon, starring Jeff Speakman. Oh man, yeah, it's another yeah. story. Cabbage Carrera. I mean, that's when I watched the UFC. And Cabbage like, is a bad dude. When I got into it. Right. But uh, now let, let me, while we talk about cabbage, I have, you know, as you can tell, Sam, I don't uh, have one question planned yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we just, yeah. You know, I grew up, uh, you know, the first UFC uh, fight I remember really uh, getting behind was uh, Emmanuel Yarborough, the. Uh, and my buddy Keith? Yes, Keith Hackney. <laughs> and uh, I remember the first minute of the fight, Emmanuel Yarborough pushed him out of the octagon. I mean, the cage door opened. And then as we, you know, uh, there's no weight classes. Uh, I think, uh, I, I'm sure, I think there was like 10 minute rounds. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. Uh, do you, what was it like for someone like you who's an actual fighter to see the progression of you know, maybe uh, the tank abbots and the cabbages, you know, tough, tough guys. But to now where you see someone like John Jones and, the, and a Ronda Rousey who are uh, so well-rounded. I think what we're seeing is kind of like the evolution of the sport in reference to, well, let me take it back. When Please. it started, it was martial arts style versus martial arts style. And the most dominant martial arts singular style in the world was proven to be Hands down, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Then after it became style versus style, and people clued in to what was going on, it was now, um, you know, neutralizing each other's styles as much as possible in order to try to capitalize on your advantage. Then the evolution came to where people were actually already training in mixed martial arts, but they were mixing the styles such as Muay Thai, kickboxing, boxing, wrestling. They were mixing it and it was becoming more of an art. But now that people have seemed to have like the Greg Jackson, or let me, let me take that back. Like Pat Militich initially did. And then Greg Jackson is doing right now. And you know, a lot of the camps, there is a mixed martial arts system per se. And now the perfecting of the system is not so much what's being concentrated on, but now it's bringing up the best representatives. And that's where we're seeing the integration of the super athletes. You know, we're seeing like John Jones, that guy, amazing athlete. I mean, you, you, John Jones can go into a fight that, you know, most, you know, well-trained martial arts, such as Machida, when he fought him, Machida is a martial artist of the highest caliber, but he's never going to be the athlete that John Jones is. And, <clears throat> John Jones is, you know, he's the super athlete with a very good, decent amount of martial arts training, 
And no matter how you cut it, it is going to be, unless you match him up with another super athlete of that caliber that has, you know, the relative same degree of knowledge that he has, it's going to be very hard for somebody to be able to compete on that level because now we're competing with the cream of the crop because, you know, the money is there. So inevitably we're attracting more and more super athletes and now children, including mine, whenever I get so blessed to have some ladies, blondes, or when you can find them. (laughs) oh my goodness whenever uh whenever uh oh my god i lost track yes 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 i'm sorry i lost track think of all the beautiful blondes we have here so the um the kids now children are being raised in this sport and they're developing the athletic fast twitch muscle fiber and tracing those lines that we you know we like i was tracing at six years old they're kids that are doing that now like floyd mayweather who are doing it at like two and three and four. And that's all they're doing. And their parents are like systematically having them concentrate on becoming, you know, if they so choose, or if the parents push them in that direction, these type of, uh, mixed martial arts athletes, such as Ronda Rousey, look at her. She's a great example. She's come up in the martial arts. She's traced those lines a million times. And it's going to be very hard to find somebody who's going to be able to stop her from doing what she's been doing since she practically came out of the womb. She is this, it's like, there's a difference between someone who studies something because they learn a lot about it. They're maybe able to do it on some level as somebody who practices something because, you know, they've obviously, they, they develop proficiency throughout the years. But when you're a child and your brain is like a sponge and you're absorbing all of that, all of the nuances of the material that you can, that you can barely put words to when you're a child and that becomes your, your existence. And the only thing that you're finding yourself doing within that time is really becoming the best version of that. There's no way you're going to top that education because your brain, when it was a sponge, that brain is now existing within the realm of only being able to execute these lines of play and these tactics that make you a superior con- competitor. That, that, wow, that's uh, that's a deep answer. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm just trying to be as honest as I can. You no, know, no, I want like, honesty. That's uh, you know, because like when you were six years old watching the UFC, you know, you, I didn't get, I I wasn't around when I was six. I'd be much younger if that was the case. But (laughs) when you were a little baby. Yeah. 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 When I was a kid, you you know, you were watching maybe a little bit more of the unskilled, just brute tough guys. Yeah. You believe it or not. When I was six, you know, what got me into this, you know, what really got me tangled. My grandmother, uh, my grandmother, uh, Ernestina Rubio, she uh, she took me to go watch the Karate Kid, and my first uh, experience of this at the age of six was Ralph Macchio crane kicking that bully, and I was like, you know what? I need to go find Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> that was my first like experience with it. So karate was your first uh, yeah foray into the world, yeah. and I still practice karate on a regular basis because you know it's it's where I started, you know. But Brazilian Jiu Jitsu inevitably in my teenage years when I finally came to the United States. You know, that's, that's where, you know, my martial arts experience kind of led me to, but karate. Yeah. That was my first. Cause you're a black belt in karate. Yeah. Which yeah. I don't think a lot of people knew. I mean, I didn't know that. No, no, no. Most people don't like the one thing about me, which a lot of people will find is like, when you meet me, I'm a super quiet. I don't talk much about fighting. Like I'll talk about, I, I know I've, I've had fighting conversations my whole life. Like nine times out of 10, I'm really quiet. 
I'm really underspoken. I'm, I'm more interested in finding about finding out about the other person more so than talking about myself. But if somebody else knows, like, you know, you knew, I'll, I'm more than happy to share, you know? Well, I really, uh, you know, I got to be honest with you. The last couple seasons, uh, I would say the last six or seven seasons of The Ultimate Fighter have been, you know, kind of forgettable uh, from a fan's perspective. Right, right. Uh, you know, just it reminds me of the show Last Comic Standing. Uh where it's like, how many great undiscovered fighters are there? You, right. You know, and so your season was like so fresh and so like, wow, who are these guys? Like every guy could be, uh, maybe star is the wrong word, but like uh, competitive in the UFC. And, yeah. and it turns out most were. Yeah, we, we pretty much all were. We all did really well. And I'm, this is the reason why I think it worked out the way that it did. I think, um, you know, A, they, the UFC, when they decided to pick the people who were going to be on the show, we were the top people in our area. I was an undefeated guy out of the Midwest. I was knocking dudes out left and right. I was five and oh, I was coming up and, um, I was on the radar. Forrest Griffin had recently choked out Jeff Munson in Brazil. The great Jeff Munson. The great Jeff Munson. Jeff is a stud. You don't mess with Jeff. You know, I, I got utmost respect for him, but get this. He was in a fight in Brazil. I think this was, at, well, he choked out Jeff Munson in Brazil, but he was in a fight or no, he not TKO Jeff Munson. I'm sorry, but he was in a fight in Brazil and this Brazilian guy, you can look it up online, either punches or kicks him, but somehow hits him in the form and breaks for his form. Like you see his arm, it breaks like breaks, right? And the beauty of the fights in Brazil is that Brazilians, when they get to fighting, that blood is hot. They don't stop. So the fight continued. Forrest kept fighting with that broken arm and proceeded to get on top of the guy and pull that 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 broken limb across this guy's throat. And because it was broken, look at the video. It wedges into the guy's throat and he chokes the guy out with a broken arm. I mean, so Forrest obviously was on the map, but he had decided to quit MMA and decided to go become a police officer in Georgia at the time before the UFC called him. Then Stefan, we were both in the Midwest. He was doing really well on the lion fighting circuit. And, um, he was actually in like physical therapy school at the time. Like we were good friends back then and we still are, you know? And then, uh, Kenny Florian, get this. He got on the ultimate fighter by fighting Drew Fickett and he lost that fight to Drew Fickett because Drew's a stud when he's on. And um, Dana White was at that fight and he saw Kenny and he's like, I think this guy's something special. So all the guys that made it on that first season, we really had made some noise and we were crushing dudes or we were like, you know, we, we, we all had that fighting spirit. So we all congregated in the house and get this on the ultimate fighter to get us on. They flew us out to Vegas and they had interviews, right? After the interviews, we ended up... Um, we ended up going back and they ended up picking out some of the guys that they wanted. We came back to Vegas and then they locked us in a hotel room for an entire week. Like, could you imagine sitting in a hotel room? I can't leave this room for a week. If you leave the room, you're off. And you were, were you allowed to train or, or? No, you couldn't leave, couldn't train, couldn't anything. Like literally I had to move the beds from side to side to put them against the wall. I turned the heat on in the room. I shut the window so it would be hot. I'd find the mirror. I'd start shadow boxing. I'd start working my techniques, you know, just getting after it. And, you know, because I still had to stay sharp on training because, you know, I'm part of the Militich team, you know, and part of being part of Militich fighting systems elite, 
you have to be ready to fight at all times. That's like part of the culture in the Midwest. So, you know, I, I, I trained for hours. I'd wait till I was tired, laid, you know, go, go in the tub, wash off. Now the room smells like success, you know, wow. like hard work. So I'd open it up to kind of like air it out make sure nobody's out there, open the window. So we're locked in this hotel for like a week, right? And then they bring, they come and they check on us, take pictures, do interviews. And then they'd, they'd take us to like, you know, to get like medical tests and stuff to make sure that we didn't have any steroids or anything. And then. Really? They did test you guys. Oh yeah. They tested us before. That's a reason like one of the guys who I think, uh, would have been a great, great fight to have on the show. Um, James something. I can't remember his name. James Repo Man Thompson. No, no, no Thompson. Kidding. Thompson wasn't heavy enough for the show. No, but another. I like Thompson though. But no, another guy. But there was um, there was a lot of uh, there were some guys that didn't make it. You know, obviously because they, I can't remember. Maybe it was John. I, I. But anyways, because of steroids, they weren't able to get on the show. You know. Oh really? Yeah, because you know the the Nevada Athletic State Commission was still going to oversee the fights like they do right now in order to make sure that you're not. You know that everything's on a even playing field, even though they're you know not considered official fights or more like uh, exhibition bouts. So they don't go on your record. They don't count against you, but they're still there. So, um, anyways, after uh, I got done with that week, I came back, and then when I left, they told me this. They go, Sam, my manager calls me. His name's Joe Cavalera, and he was instrumental in getting me on the show because, believe this or not, Joe Cavalera worked with Dana White at a hotel as a bellman. They worked there together. Or like like a, or a valet or something, but they worked there together, and Dana and him would like all would you know they would they 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 had all the connections and all the contacts in Boston. But then Dana was like, you know what, I'm not going to be a piece of lint in somebody else's pocket and be able to be fired because get this, Joe told me the story. He said him and Dana and this other guy who had been there for like 20, 30 years. The guy had been there for thirty years. He was I I you know working. The boss decided one day because a customer had halfway complained about the guy who had been there for 30 years to just let him go. This guy had a family. This guy had a life and they let him go. And Dana White at that point, this is what Joe told me, said, he goes, Joe, I'm never going to be a piece of lint in somebody else's pocket. He Hmm. left. And then from what I understand, I think that's when he started teaching the boxing and starting his own business. And then he went into the UFC and did really well. But it was that mindset that really like like separated him and distinguished him that propelled him to become who he is today. He said to himself, I will not be a piece of lint. And so, now this is what Joe told me, mind you, I don't know how accurate the story is. You'd have to ask Dana. I'm I sure don't he know could if tell I you. can get that interview. I'd like to. I'll, I'll ask him for you then. But I remember Joe told me that and, and he said, yes. Yeah, and he talks to that Boston. Now. He's like, yeah, Sam, you know, after, uh, after he told me that, man, I never saw him again. And next thing, well, not that he never saw me. He went to do the boxing thing and then he went and talked to the Fertitas and, you know, and then he opened the UFC and then, you know, so he, um, but it was that mindset that propelled him to there. Because if you start thinking that you are someone who should be valued from what I understand, Look what happened. I mean, the guy's a multimillionaire right now giving $10,000 tips to waitresses. Talk about not being a piece of lint anymore, right? Yeah, I would say Dana's done okay for himself. Yeah, I'm happy for him. I'm uh, super happy for him. And, I, and, I th- and I'm really glad that we were instrumental in making that happen. Because, you know, before The Ultimate Fighter, you know, it was like we had talked about earlier. It was possibly going to be sold. I think the Fertitas were like, uh, I don't know if this is worth the... Uh, they had dropped a lot of money. And weren't really seeing the investment. It's hard to get on TV still. And and, uh, this Spike TV was like the last shot, like last Hail Mary. And, uh, 
you know. And Sam Hoger and the rest of the cast made that dang Hail Mary land. Well, well you, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you were a semi-controversial figure on that show because you had a interesting uh, strategy, I guess, which I think was very smart of trying to fight until the last moment possible, saving yourself, right? And I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Well, let me, now that the uh, non-disclosure agreements have passed oh. their time, I can actually speak. And this is the first time I'm going to speak out on this. Breaking news. No, no, no. I'm, I'm serious. The, this, is, this is exactly how this happened. That controversial issue of me stealing the clothes, that was a huge misunderstanding, which... I'm going to now. I can speak about because the, uh, like I said, the non-disclosure agreements are have passed. They're and time. how long is uh, just a typical uh, non-disclosure agreement on on a, re- a reality show? Was it like a couple years or? I, I don't even remember, but I know it is passed at this point, so I can speak honestly. Please, please do. Okay, I the clothes which I had in my bag, I got permission to get from the office from Peter Welsh, the boxing coach who denied giving me permission. That coward piece of crap from Boston said to me that it was fine for me to go in that box and grab this clothes because my clothes was all sweaty and it was all messed up. So I took the clothes, you know, I took, I'd take a shirt, I'd put it on, I'd take it back to the house whenever I got done. Then I'd wash my clothes and the sweaty shirt that I used to absorb all my sweat after training. He gave me permission to do that. When Kenny Florian confronted him and said, Peter, did you give him permission? He denied and said, no, I did not give him permission. And like a coward, he refused to be a man and admit what he had done. So at that point, when, when they started confronting me about the issues, you know, about all, you know, about the stuff that I, you know, I had received permission from him to get out of this box. I now had to carry the burden of that. So I'm sitting there shocked and I'm like, well, what the hell happened? And so as you, you see me on the show, I'm like, I, I like, I, I have no response. I'm, I'm, I'm caught right there. Like with my, with, 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 with my foot in my mouth, trying to decide like, Peter, why are you, why are you lying? Why, why aren't you telling these people? Why aren't you being a man and telling these people that you gave me permission to go ahead and grab the stuff that I had? Why are you trying to put this off on me? But I mean, he's a coward. I mean, at the end of the day, Peter Welsh's move right there was a cowardly move. And I hate the fact that he still to this day has not been enough of a man to come and apologize to me because I've been carrying the burden of that because A, I'm not going to break my non-disclosure, but now I can because I'm not breaking it. And B, because he's sitting there right now believing that in some way, shape or form, I'm supposed to carry his cross. That is a horrible thing that, you know, that I had to carry this entire time. So inevitably... You know, after um, after everybody decided to come after me and say, oh, you stole everything. You know what? There was confusion there. I got up and I apologized to everybody. I said, hey, guys, I'm sorry. Here's all the stuff, you know, I had in that little bag that I had permission from Peter Welsh to get, but I didn't put them. I didn't throw them under the bus again. I said, you know what? I'm sorry for the confusion. Here's the stuff. You guys are welcome to take your stuff back if you feel any of this stuff is yours. But my problem with this is that this shows the toll that somebody else's filthy lie and inability to be a man really causes somebody else. You're better off telling the truth than being a scumbag and sitting there having somebody else carry your cross rather than sit there and, you know, just say, hey, you know what? I gave him permission. OK, well, you know, here, let's uh, let's give this stuff back. It could have been that simple. But it, this is what a dirtbag does. That's what Peter Welsh, the boxing coach on The Ultimate Fighter did and where and he's still he's still in boston running a gym i wonder if he's throwing his boxers under the bus the same way that he did me he probably is he's probably as shady as don don king 
Well, listen, if we're learning one thing, don't put Sam and Peter Welsh in the same room. No, put us in the same room. I'll be happy to say this to his face. And I'd be, you know what I'd be even more happy about? If he became a man and apologized for the fact that he gave me permission to do that and then threw me under the bus on the show, not willing to admit the fact that he gave me permission to take those things. That is such a scumbag, cowardly move. Even when I screw up, I still, you know what? I've screwed up tons of times in my life. I admit when I'm wrong. Like you saw me, I was the man on that show. I admitted, you know what? Hey, I'm wrong. I did not know that this stuff was not able to be taken. It's in this bag. I apologize to you guys. If this is your stuff, please take it. I was a man. He was a coward. I was carrying his cross, and I'm not carrying it anymore because you know what? I fulfilled my non-disclosure agreement with the, with the Ultimate Fighter. I fulfilled my obligation to you know the team of the UFC. And you know what? I have carried Peter Welsh's cross for long enough, and if he ever decides to be a man and apologize to me like he should then you know what? We can both be, we can at least both be satisfied and know that he's not a scumbag. But you know what? I feel sorry for any of the boxers that box out of his gym in Boston. Well, uh, Peter Welsh, uh, email me, eastgakel at AOL if you want to come on the show and rebut Sam's claims. Please do. Yeah, it, I'll get you both on the show. It could be the sure. high, highest rated episode ever. Uh, but because like when that whole thing went down and this is something that maybe you can talk about it, maybe you can't, you just as a fan with no uh, inside sources to that show, uh, that kind of seemed like, oh, they're doing this for the cameras and like a, like a wacky storyline. Did they ever tell you guys act like you're mad at this guy to just drum up interest? Not so much because they did want that degree of authenticity. And this was a very ingenious play by you know, Andrea and, uh, and, uh, you know, Dana and all the people that were involved in the show, they would not tell us that they needed specific scenes. What they would tell us though, we would sit down in these huge meetings and they would say, listen, no one's going to be interested. It's kind of like what happened in season two of the ultimate fighter. Remember season two? Oh my gosh. It's exactly what happened there. No one's going to be interested in watching a bunch of guys work out, eat, and just fight. See, I would, but I'm in the minority. But yeah, I mean, but I mean, you're you're like you're like you're like you're like mo- like man, you're like like in the man's men kind of thing, you know? Like we're like we're into like you know seeing what's up, you know? But the thing is, they would sit down and they would tell us in these meetings, they would say, "Listen, guys, no one's going to be interested in those things. We need you to give us something of substance that we can take to the network and actually sell. Because if not, we're all going to be in trouble." this show's not going to go anywhere. So then inevitably, then we started seeing like, you know, the cycle of things happening, you know, because granted I was on this show with a lot of like really intelligent guys, you know, Kenny Florian's really intelligent. Diego Sanchez is crazy. He's not, I wouldn't call him intelligent, but he's crazy. And I mean that craziness, like when he finally started letting it come out, like I remember one time, um, he's in the house, like chasing aliens or something. I was playing chess with Swick. I, I, crazy but like the thing is is like what it allowed us to do is it allowed us the freedom to no longer feel like we had to be like reserved contained people like that were trying to like you know be like emblematic of the sport and more so we were able to let go and show the freest side of like what it would be like if you were free to be the utmost end of your of your super ego which then allowed us to really like 
compete on another level because we are no longer feeling like we have the stigma of having to be reserved and having to be under, you know, under the microscope of scrutiny because the microscope doesn't exist at that point. What exists now is pushing the furthest and hardest element and image of who you are. As a matter of fact, I think during those seasons, they said, Sam, you're such a politician. And I'm like, well, thank you. Because granted, I was definitely, I was definitely trying to, you know, push the show as much as I could. And I was trying to build the show as much as I could. But at the same time, you know, I, I was enjoying the game of it as well. And it was a lot of fun. Well, I mean, there's a lot of characters that were on that show. I mean, you had uh, Sanchez, who's, uh, like you said... Uh, he is a nut. He is crazy. But he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's just, he's really like... Diego Sanchez is your American-born Mexican who is so proud of being Mexican. Like, he's like... He is like the American version of Julio Cesar Chavez. Like, the guy is just... He knows nothing but fighting. He cares about nothing that's not fighting. And he is his, proud, his pride in that Mexican heritage... It's kind of like the difference between like somebody like it's the difference between like the real thing and a wannabe. Right. I hate to say this, but Diego is like the wannabe in reference to like, you know, being like a Mexican. He's so proud of that heritage that he has, but he wasn't born there that he exudes it through every ounce of his being that it is so powerful that like every Mexican and every Hispanic in the world love him. Because we see in him the machismo, the 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 culture, the the desire to fight. And it's like, I can put it best like this. He's harder than the hard guys over there. Yeah, I mean, he's like, uh, you know, I'm a big pro wrestling guy. He, he always reminded me of like a Mexican ultimate warrior, the way he'd walk to the rain. With the yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Remember that one? <laughs> he is, he is really, you know, I mean, and I've, I spoke to other people, you know, in the, uh, in the community, in the Hispanic community, cause I'm really involved and they, um, and they see it, you know, they see it as well. They're like, that's our guy. Like, it doesn't matter whether he wins or loses at the end of the day, everybody who was a fan of like, say like Trinidad or De La Hoya in boxing are fans of Diego Sanchez because we can relate to like how intensely he chooses to represent the culture. Well, I mean, his fight with uh, Gilbert Melendez. Oh my gosh. Like, I uh, mean, people were saying Gilbert's not Mexican and Gilbert's just as Mexican as Diego. He is. Gilbert carries the flag just as well, but nobody carries it with like the blood and fire that you know that Diego carries it with. I mean it's it's unbelievable. I was in Texas when that fight was happening, you know? And it's just like like you I, I talked to like some of my my friends like pinche way mira or that means you know so they'd say they would definitely say that like Diego Sanchez is us. That's what they would say. And then another example uh, on a completely separate note like you know um the uh, another person who really like I wish would have had more of an opportunity on the show was Strange Brew, a guy named Jason Thacker. Right. You know he's such a nice guy, he's such a good fellow. But I mean he he's really fallen upon hard times. And if um, I really you know I really hope that the MMA community still embraces him as a part of you know what you know he was a part of that process. You know, and he he's a good guy, such a nice like humble guy. And he's um, I really think that. Uh, He's, I really think that a lot of people, uh, really view him wrong and they don't give him the opportunity to, you know, to be who he is. He's a good, you know, he's a decent fellow. I really think that the community should support him more because he still was integral in the building of our sport. Well, I mean, uh, who knows if that show the first season, uh, wasn't successful where, uh, 
You know, I mean, tomorrow night we have Ronda Rousey fighting in front of 70,000 people. I know. Isn't that awesome? We have uh, Ronda fighting Holly Holm. That's going to be so exciting. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm going to butcher the girl's name, uh, Joanna Polish Jerzyczek. Uh, uh, got uh, it, got the- it, got it co-main event i mean uh, if you would have said to me five years ago earl there's going to be a ufc card where the co-main event and main event are two female fights so you're crazy i i believe you and uh of course i'm excited tomorrow uh for the super heavyweight fight uh the great uh mark hunt and oh, uh, wow. bigfoot silva in their rematch oh wow mark hunt they don't make men like that Oh my gosh! The Super Samoan against the Super Samoan Bigfoot Silva, who uh, is a beast. Uh, and then uh, there's Stefan Strew fighting tomorrow night, and uh, a couple other good fights. Uh, but let's get into your. Uh, we're not plugging UFC 193 on this podcast, uh, but I did notice you were at one point supposed to fight uh, Alistair Overeem. Yep, I remember that. Uh, now what? goes into uh and you were uh there's mystery around why uh you uh, w- why didn't you end up fighting him it didn't materialize you know just didn't happen it sucks you know because we were set to fight actually believe it or not i think it was in glory over in europe and it was a last minute fight you know and i you know what i think one of my mistakes was with that fight I think I announced it on the internet, you know, and it's, and that doesn't, that really doesn't help the situation whenever you like, if mind you, I was so excited, you know, I announced it preemptively on the internet. And if you talk, if you talk about a, like, if I said, listen, the next UFC fight that I have is this fight and I release it before the UFC does. They're not going there. Then nine times out of 10, it's like it, another good example is like, if I have an art, like say I have Jay-Z's next album. And I tell everybody, hey, I got this album, and I put it out there. You can imagine the repercussions from that. Or like even Tarantino, look what happened with him. He put out the script from, uh, no, he didn't put it out. Somebody got the script from Hateful Eight, from what I understood, like last year or two years ago, and put it out before he was able to, I mean, so it, it inevitably, it didn't work out. Plus, it's just, man, that would that would have been such a payday. That, that was at a UG11, a decade of fights, oh October gosh, 17th. Oh, gosh, that would have been such a payday. They, you know how much they were going to pay me for that fight? I mean, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, uh, now this was a non-UFC fight, I guess. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, uh, were the paydays... Uh, I'll, put, I'll put it to you this way. At the time, the euro was worth more than the dollar. The exchange rate on the amount of money I was about to get for that fight... Would have been beautiful. So we're talking, uh, you don't have to tell me, but l- let's just say a c- couple hundred thousand. I mean, is, is that... Uh, let's put it to you this way. I'd be able to buy a really nice car and some other... Uh, accoutrements. Yes. I, I certainly would have been able to do a lot of... I would have been able to buy myself... I would have been able to take a serious position in the futures market and be able to trade, like, say, like, on the instead of having to trade on the E-mini S&P 500, I could have probably, like, taken a position, like, whenever it was trending upwards, like, with oil or something like... Or, or with... Oh gosh! Oh, like, okay. It was a lot of money. It was. It was definitely something. Like I liked. I, I'm learning about trading futures right now. I'm studying that because you know I, I love the market. I like finance, and but that would have definitely let me be able to have something that I could take a significant position in. Okay, I'll put it to you this way: If you're into trading, my account off of the money that I would have gotten for that fight could easily have been over. I think close to a million dollar account. 
Now, well, that's uh, th- I now, but a- you have to know about trading futures, and you got to know about uh, taking taking a taking an edge on margin, and know how far they take that margin for you. But that's how it was. It was pretty close to that much. Now, what uh, you know? I after mean- wait, wait, after you exchange euros, that's right. After you exchange from euros to dollars, being able to do that, you know. No, I remember uh, my next question. Uh, I'm a bit of an Overeem fan because I, I like his pro wrestling persona. The, the, <laughs> the larger the, than life, the very... The Rick Rude, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of like I'm better than all of you. I, I've always uh, appreciated that. Now, Overeem in 2003 looked like Roger from What's Happening. <laughs> and then, uh, I don't know, kind of miraculously, he uh, got a little bigger. Um, no, I mean, he got caught. It was steroids you know he was on roids well, i didn't want to say it but no, uh, i mean he was on roids and i mean I, I i don't blame him for doing steroids but this is this has always been my position on steroids but was that a concern uh, like I, I guess before you say what you're going to say like to me that's a horribly unfair fight like you've got one guy who who clearly in 2009 he was a different version of the 2003 version you you know i'm not have you ever uh taken the peds when i was fighting I mean, I did my supplements, you know, but I didn't do like, I didn't, I didn't get on the Winstrol and the, 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 the Deca. No, 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 never did any of the, no, because like one of my things about fighting was I wanted it to be me fighting. And like, one of the things that like, I'm really big on is like, I want, if I go in to fight you or if I go in to fight anybody, it's me. I don't want to have to say that, oh, I have to give credit now to the fact that I was on steroids or the fact that, and so that was always really big to me to really like, you know, throughout my career, you know, like one of the things that I was really big on was like, if I'm going in to fight you, it's me. I don't want anything. I don't want to have to break away and like in the back of my mind, give credit to some other thing. Then granted, it's not doing the training, but you know, it's given me an an unfair advantage, you know, because what it is doing is it's. And I feel like in a way, like when I, t- like if I took steroids at that point in time, I feel like it would take credit away from my work. So I never wanted to do that. And like win or lose. And I fought tons of guys on roids, tons of them, most of them I'd say. And I beat most of them, you know, and I'm fine with that. But the thing is, is like, I never wanted to have to like say that I have to give credit to something else for the work that I put in because I wanted it to be my credit, my win or my loss. Like, really, I didn't care. Like, as long as I went to war, that's what I cared about, you know? And that's that's kind of my attitude. Like, even like I even taught my students at my school in Houston. I, I would tell them, like, if you train in Hoger MMA, in the Hoger mixed martial arts system, and mind you, that system is composed of being trained by the best trainers in the world. Pat Militich, greatest mixed martial arts trainer in history. Floyd Mayweather Sr., he's my boxing trainer. Greatest boxing trainer ever. Trained the greatest boxer of our time boring nonetheless, but still, um, uh, Kenny Weldon trained, uh, you know, the Hoger mixed martial arts style is, you know, it's composed of the single, like learning from the best. So that being said, in, in, in reference to what we're doing here, I never wanted to, you know, I never, uh, the, the thing that I always kept in mind is ABC that if you ever walk up to a guy who says they trained under Sam Hoger, you go up to him and go, Oh, you trained under Sam. You say, okay, ABC. And if they don't come back right away with what that means, it means always be closing, like Glenn Garrigan Ross. And the reason the Hoger style is like that is because you always want to be closing the fight. Because the longer I let a fight last, the more opportunity, even if it's random, that the opponent has to be able to hurt me. 
You don't want to give them that opportunity. You want to always be systematically hunting to close that fight and put this person away. Now, the problem with the way that I teach, and I really, uh, this, this, this does bother me, is that all of my students are programmed to train and fight that way. And if you win, and even me, if I, even if I'm doing a grappling competition, if I don't finish every single one of these guys and I take first place, you, you'll see me do it. I take the first place medal off and I hand it to whoever I didn't finish or the first person in line that I didn't finish because I don't deserve that medal because I didn't finish that match. So why would it like the point of doing a job is to complete it. And if you don't complete it, what's the point of getting a reward for an incomplete job? I really feel that if you're not closing and you don't close, you didn't really win. You got some points that some people decided in the middle of a phone booth, like probably drinking horchata and eating picanha, that this was, this was going to be the reason that somebody gets a point and somebody doesn't. But I don't truly believe if you did not finish that person that you really deserve, like, you know, some, you, you, you don't deserve first place. And so, you know who I used to admire is Hodger Gracie. He was really big on this. If he didn't finish you, you know, he would, he would literally put himself in positions where he was winning. He would go into a position where he would, you know, be, where he would lose in an attempt to try to finish the person. That's a real fighter. That, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a real competitor. That's somebody who, who's there to complete the objective that you're there to complete, not get points. Since when did fighting become about points? They've, if it became about points, we'd have 5 million, you know, Floyd Mayweather juniors out there. I mean, he is the king of points. Very boring fighter. Though. I mean, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah, his style is incredibly boring. It's not like when he was younger, but he broke his hand. And that's, that's a huge portion of the reason why he's not been able to knock people out. And if you notice, like and read about it in the press, he has to always get hand surgery and get his hand fixed. So, I mean, he's got to be smart with his career and he's got a family to support. I think he can support like a hundred families now, but. Well, he's probably put it in a hundred girls. So he probably has to. Hey, it's a buddy of mine. So oh no so, no I don't but, want but, to upset you. No no Never, no 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 no, no not out. at all. But no, I mean it's just, no, no no you can leave it in leave it in. It's fine. Trust me. Trust me. He doesn't care. That guy is so like he's so on top of the world. He's doing he's doing really well. You know and but back to my main point. My main point. We're talking about points and fighting. I don't believe. Actually, this this topic I speak about extensively in my interview. In uh, this you have mag- one coming out, right? Yeah, it's coming out. It's coming out in the uh, Fighters Only magazine. It's coming out soon. And the reason they interviewed me is because my student Sage Northcutt, oh, who is doing amazing in the UFC, Jeez. the reason his style is the way it is is because he came up and understood and learned the MMA game from me. Now, he has not mentioned me. I don't know why, but his style is the Hoger MMA style. Now, I wish I could still be in his camp to oversee what he's doing, but I've been concentrating on acting. I sold my business and merged it with Gracie Baja West Chase with my buddy Upliano over there in uh, Houston, Texas. It's on West Chase and Westheimer if anybody wants to go. Do they have Great a website? School. Uh... They do. Just type in Gracie Baja and type in West Chase in, in Houston, Texas. And so my students are over there now. And, you know, I'm not able to attend to my students or Sage or anybody because I'm concentrating on building this acting career and building this career in the entertainment industry. And I'm really enjoying it. You know, it's going really well. And Sage has done exceptional at representing the style in his first fight in the UFC. And he's done it in Legacy. And as you notice, he finishes the fight. He's not sitting there fighting for points. 
Now, I left him recently with my first jiu-jitsu instructor from Alaska, Ted Stickle from Gracie Baja, Alaska. Now now he's at Gracie Baja Katie in Texas. And he's training Sage. So Sage is in really good hands, you know? And his father, believe it or not, was my landlord when I owned my gym, Mark Northcutt. Great guy. Amazing guy. The family is like an amazing family. Like if you ever get to meet the family, you'll really see like they are like a really like upstanding awesome family. And I mean, he really helped me when I had my gym in Houston and I was able to run that gym for like close to like, I think almost five to seven years before I decided to like really like take my acting career in the direction that I'm taking it now, you know, and I've now acting is taking off and it's going really good. Do you ever have a problem when you walk into an audition room? Cause I instantly, when I saw you at the comedy store, then I, Oh my God, Sam from the ultimate fighter. Like, do, do you, Get that problem like, oh, this is the UFC guy. As a matter of fact, um, I have had that happen a lot, like a lot. Like as soon as I walk in, they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, exactly like you said, it's always the same way. Oh my God, Sam Hoger, right? From the UFC. I'm like, as a matter of fact, I think I am. Is that good <laughs> or bad for you? It's worked out on both sides of the equation because it's good because, you know, I already have like a pretty decent sized fan base and they know that. And it's, it's, and, and, and it's, bad because you know they see you as a fighter and you know mind you I'm 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 a real serious method actor you know I'm studying method under Kathleen Leslie who is a voting member of the world's most prestigious actor studio and mind you I'm not in the actor studio I'm only studying in her side class under her but I mean I'm a super, super involved method actor, you know, and I'm really trying to learn, you know, how to be the best actor I can be. Like if you look in my room and you walk inside, you'll see there's a cross right in front of my bed. And if you look off to the sidewall, there's a picture of the Joker, the one that uh, Hugh Jackman played, like just looking at me with this scowl, just reminding me like, that's how great of an actor I want to be. He got so into character and he absorbed this character. Mind you, this is the story that I heard he locked himself in a room at the top of a building reading Batman comics and like painting his face and understanding like the nuances of becoming the character studying the character's intention their mood their ambition their desire the Joker's psychology and like he became such a real version of the Joker and absorbed so much it's like like to get to that level like literally and this is how I explain it to people you know how sometimes you have like negative thoughts like yes okay so then you know you've had negative everybody's had negative thoughts but we all reject them because we're, we're sensible human beings to get to that level of acting from what I understand, obviously I'm not in his head, but this is from what I understand from people who've seen his journal and whatnot. You have to begin to accept those negative thoughts as like, those are okay. And then you have to justify them. You have to let them become a part of your being and a part of your thread. And then you start like, you know, you literally go into a psychosis of becoming this character. And it's like, as an actor, from my perspective, there's a certain beauty to being able to like go so deep into a character that, okay, so Konstantin Stanislavski, he's the father of modern day acting as we know it. And Trisha Ray was the one who introduced me to him down in Houston, Texas at the next actor studio. And she told me that, okay, Stanislavski taught his students. You take into consideration tension, mood, ambition, desire, psychology, history, and stakes. And you got to be the person who can see yourself from the third row of the auditorium, as well as through the eyes of the person that you're working with, and then see yourself through the eyes of that character and be able to interact with the other person as that character, using the magic lever of the if. So he would always say, do all these things, but come only so close to where you're one step away from the character psychologically that you don't that you don't cross that line because you want to keep your own, you know, you want to keep your own sense of being, right? 
From what I understood, Heath Ledger crushed through that and decided I'm going to merge psychologically with this character. To and not mind you, I'm not in his head. I don't know, but this is what I've understood. And I'm trying, like when I like when I work on these characters as an actor, to really like crush through that and really like psychologically take on these characters. And it messes with you because man, you try, you, you go into this thing that I like to call like the void, and like you have to like dig yourself out of it in order to try to get back to just you because you're trying to let go of these characters because you have to accept so many things about them. Well, you might give the most well thought out answers in the history of uh, this podcast. Oh man, you're I don't funny, even rem- dude, you're so. I don't even you remember. You are a comedian, dude. <laughs> no, I'm so, I don't even remember what the original question was. We started talking about Overeem, and we got into Stanislavski. I love it. Um, dude, I'm sorry. I've been hitting the head for a living for so long. I forget things and I go off on t- my, my bad. I'm no, sorry. No, <laughs> I, I have the, I have you, that tendency because you know, like I said, it's it's about being as like I'm trying to be as like upfront and honest as I can. So, I mean, I guess this, this kind of happens, you know, let me tell you something, Sam, you are the ideal podcast guest because people who listen to this and it's a fair amount of people, right? They already know my story, right? They don't want to hear about my stories anymore. They want to hear about your stories. I mean, you like Don Fry have done something that 99.9% of the people on the planet don't do i don't have the balls to do it i've never been into a fight in my life uh you're not missing much well i have a big head so i have a huge target you you know (laughs) it's like uh i don't know what mark hunt's strategy is tomorrow night against bigfoot silva but i'd aim for that fucking melon (laughs) oh man i can i can tell you man that's a bit like if you're fighting bigfoot silva and i'm not in right to a degree, I'm being funny or trying to be, right. but to a degree, this is a serious question. When you have an opponent, and, and I don't, I'm not making fun of Bigfoot Silva, but he has a unique body, uh, you know, a small uh, bout of gigantism. Uh, the head is his, uh, I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald could have hit it from the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it is. Let's say you're fighting Bigfoot Silva tomorrow. Is your strategy to try and hit the head? Like for me personally? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm like, saying you're fighting was, Okay, tomorrow. so if I was going to have to fight Bigfoot Silva, I mean to be honest with you, I'm I tell people this a lot. You know, I'm much better on the ground than I am standing, but I'm Hispanic. So one of the things we have, like I had mentioned earlier, like Duran is that machismo. And like one of the things I really enjoy doing, which most people don't, I enjoy putting my foot on a line. Like imagine taking your foot and drawing that line in the sand against somebody you fight and putting your foot on the line. And then they put their foot on the line and you guys are swinging for the fences until somebody goes down. You can block and move and whatnot, but you don't want to take a step back and you want to continue to punish them as much as you God possibly can or until you go down. I have that tendency. But if I was going to fight it intelligently, I'd try to take him down and get the submission inevitably because I'm way better on the ground than I am standing up. But I, I love to stay. I love to sit in the pocket and swing until like go for broke and like see who's going to see where it's going to go. You know, because the thing you find out about most men when you're standing on that line and you're swinging for the fences is that most men, even fighters, don't really like or have it in them to really stand there and really go toe to toe with you. Not many of them have that Vanderlei Silva edge or that shoot box edge. Well, they'll stand in there and they'll they'll let you have it until like until you're blue in the melon, you know. Well, that's why I've always loved Dan Henderson. Like, oh Dan, Dan, my boy, dude. I, I saw Dan last time in Temecula. I went to his house, and man, that talk about another guy who's like he is willing to go. He's willing to either kill you with a sword or he will die by the sword, but he will do nothing in between. 
Well, that's that's a guy who lives in the pocket. I mean, although gosh, you're, it, that's so true. He's he's like it's like Gotti Ward, both of them in one guy. Well, I mean, that, although he uh, did not do very well uh, last Saturday against Vitor uh, Belfort, yeah, but I don't think anybody really cares. I mean, whether or not he does well, we just want it. Like literally, he's like the Americans American. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, is like, we don't care. Like, I don't think any fan out there holds that against him. Like, we literally do not care whether he wins or loses. We just want to see that American Olympian get in there and, and represent like the best piece of every one of us that's willing to fight till the end, uh, win, lose, or die. Well, here's my thing. And, and uh, I approach it from a different uh, perspective because I'm just an idiot fan. Uh you know, like, I don't want to see Henderson take too much more punishment. That's another thing. We all care about him because I, I hate to say this, but we all love Dan Henderson. I mean, I mean, there, there's just like, if you're, if you're, if you, even if you watch him fight and it's your first time watching him fight, you're like, I don't know what it is about that guy, but I like him. Yeah. I mean, Honey, uh, I like that guy. And then your wife is probably like, you know what? I like that guy too. And then your kids are probably like. We like him too. Like he's just you like him. I don't know what it is. I wish I had that quality to be looked at just like that and be like, you know what? I like that guy. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest with you. I cried. I'm 47. Right. I cried when Bigfoot Silva was on top of Fedor and just fucking hammer fist. And Fedor at one point almost got out, but he, he just couldn't. And it was like, oh my, this is like seeing a beheading video. It was so, uh, you know, like. And Fedor's fighting uh, New Year's Eve uh, in Japan, and uh, I'm sure Henderson's not done fighting. And uh, there's other, a couple other fighters. I I don't know if they should necessarily be fighting anymore. It's like, has a fighter yourself? Uh, was there a point? Do you think a guy like Henderson or Fedor just they don't want to stop because they like fighting, or they don't want to hear the the crowds cheering, or, or they want to hear them keep cheering? I think it's a double-edged sword. I think when you've been doing something your whole life, like I said, like when, when we started this podcast, that fight to get to finding 500 men, eventually the number doesn't exist. It's just who you are. And it's not whether or not it makes you happy or sad. It literally is just who you are. And being that you understand that this is life and this has been your life and this is who you've been, you feel that by letting that go, you're killing yourself. You're literally committing a personal suicide. Even if you don't die, there's a suicide that happens inside of yourself when you let that go. And I'll tell you, as a fighter, you have to find other outlets to go ahead and continue having something to give your life meaning after you're done fighting. Because there have been fighters, I'm not going to mention any names, who have committed suicide. Because the truth is, when you live on that edge day in and day out. And I warn people about this from my school before they start fighting. Once you start fighting, you're like a dog who's tasted blood. Nothing else in the world exists. I remember when I was fighting, I would be talking to the hottest girls in the world when I was fighting for the UFC. Oh my God, they were throwing themselves at me. And I didn't care. Like I literally got to this point where you're, um, how, how can I describe this? It's like a, uh, it, it happened to me and I don't know that this happens with every fighter, but it happened to me like where you get to like this emotional zero, like you're literally, you feel nothing. You don't feel good. You don't feel bad. You don't feel happy. You don't feel sad. 
The only time you feel anything that rhymes. Look, good, bad, happy, sad. What are you uh, writing? I, I know, I know, I know. Uh, red duck, muck, or uh, breadfish, bluefish. Remember that? Anyways, let me stick to my point, though. Uh, no, go Seuss. off. I don't care. No, no, no. But you get to this point. At least I did, where I was at this emotional zero, where I would literally, like, feel nothing for anybody. And I'd have to be there because like, think about it. When you're on top of somebody else and you're punching them in the face and you're dealing them all this punishment, like I, like me right now, I feel bad doing that. I'm like, oh man, that, that looks like it hurts. Like if you see my last fight on YouTube where I'm fighting Patrick Miller, after I knock him out, I turn around, I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, oh my God, am I 12 years old? I, I went in and I go pick him up. I'm like, dude, that looked like it hurt. Are you okay? Holy crap. And what you know? does he say to you? Oh, he was like, I, 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 I was all, you know, he was gone. And I was just like, oh man, I'm sorry. So I had to go to the middle of the ring and pray just to like get back to zero. And like, you see it. It's like Sam Hoger versus Patrick Miller on YouTube. But it's like, they're, 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 that emotional zero that I get to when I fight, it's like you're able to do whatever's necessary to be done. And the problem with that is that the only time you feel alive as a fighter, at least me, was when I was fighting. Like, and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm really happy that I got into acting because acting forces me to have to get in touch with my feelings and forces me to have to experience them and forces me to have to like understand them and like no longer like shut them away in a closet and put them like, like try to get them as far away from me as possible. Like I have to get in touch with those. And then by doing that, I have found that like life is so much more rich when you actually allow yourself to like indulge in what it means to feel, because then not only are you able to relate to people on a much deeper level, because when I was fighting, even my girlfriends, like I've only, you know, I'm a real long-term relationship kind of guy. Like I date, like you can ask anybody I've dated, like I've, I've dated like, you know, probably a handful of people, but I dated for like five years, seven years. Like when I was 13, I dated my girlfriend until I was like graduated from college. Like I'm, I'm really big on like one girl and like one relationship because you need just one person there that you can feel something for. But the problem is with this fighting lifestyle is that even with her, I had to like uh, not allow myself to feel too much because it took away from like me being able to focus solely on this objective of fighting and being able to be as numb as possible while I'm fighting to be able to finish these people because that's the, it's literally, it's almost like the only thing that exists is going for that win, going for that finish, finishing that opponent and existing within that. It, it really limited my, my ability to emotionally involve myself with so many people. And I feel like I, I lost such a huge portion of my life committing to being like, as much of a fighter as I could be. So now that, like I said, back to acting now though. So now that I'm acting and I'm getting in touch with these feelings, it's, it's like overwhelming at times, you know, I'm it's weird watching your fight uh, with Patrick Miller, right? I'm a look multi at the end. Look at the end. You, you, you're praying in the middle of the ring. Yeah. Cause I, 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 it's like, and so back to my point initially about fighters though, when you start fighting, at least what I've noticed and like with the people that I've spoken to, and I'm sure this is not everybody because everybody's experience is different. Every single one of the people that I've spoken to about this, they say the only time I ever felt alive is when that cage door closes. That's it. Then, and then, you know, and after their win or their loss, that's like such an emotional high or such an emotional low, depending on how it turns out. Because you really like, that is the only time, like as a fighter that at least for me, and at least for some of the, most of the people or all the people actually that I spoke to, that you can really allow yourself to feel anything. And the crazy thing is, is like after my fights, I wouldn't want to go party. I wouldn't want to go hang out. I, I, I want to go to like, literally it's like, I have this such intense rush of emotion, whether it's happiness or sadness, 
All I want to do is go sleep because it's like, it overwhelms me. So now to fast forward to the point that I had made initially or to rewind and then fast forward, um, do whatever you want. Whenever a fighter finishes their fighting career, at least for me, it feels like, and I'm not done. I, my career is not done by any stretch of the imagination. Cause I've not claimed retirement and anyone who says I've retired, I've not retired. I'm what not. would it take to, uh, um, you, you know, is, is there a particular fight that would summon your desires to get back into it again? It's money. It's money right now. Cause it's a business and I've understood that, you know, and yeah. because, you know, one of the things that I have learned is like initially when I was younger and I was fighting, I'd fight anybody. I mean, look at the record of people who I fought. If you were not a killer or a, bad dude. I wouldn't care to fight you. I fought Forrest Griffin. I fought Stephen Bonner. Rashad I fought Evans. Rashad, Ev Rashad is like one of the greatest fighters of our time. Rashad Evans. I fought Lyoto Machida. I fought uh, Jeff Newton. I fought Bobby Southworth. If you were not a killer, I can't get out of bed to fight you. I don't care to fight you because I'm not going to discover anything about myself beating up some like a real fighter does not want to fight somebody they know they can beat. And the reason you don't want to fight somebody you know you can beat is because you learn nothing about yourself by running over somebody. You don't become a better fighter. You don't become a better warrior. You don't become a better martial artist. But the thing is, which I failed to realize during my career, when you fight, it is a business. And the UFC let me go because, you know, the business, you know, I was not winning, you know, all the fights, you but know? Can I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, and it, like, you lost a decision to Rashad Evans, but it's like, that's not like... No, a lot of people said I beat him. I know. Yeah. Because he went to the hospital and I went to the bar. I know. It's not like the but, worst thing in the world. No, no, no. But it's not. But I mean, the UFC, like, the, and I remember speaking to somebody, one of the higher ups there in the UFC, he goes, Sam, listen to me. People look at records. Why does Floyd Mayweather make over a billion dollars on a show? It's not because his fights are exciting. It's because people are statistically still looking at numbers as opposed to looking at the fight. It's not baseball where I can have a losing season and then come back and have a winning season or, or, or basketball or any other sport like that. This sport literally makes you either a king or an executed servant. And the thing is, is like for me, when I was fighting, I cared about fighting the best. I mean, that's little because that's where I found the most self-discovery. Mind you, at this time, I'm emotionally numb to everything else. So the only thing that I'm really going to feel something is when I'm fighting somebody who I know is a killer because I know either I'm going to kill them or I'm going to die. But you know what? I'm alive during that time. And that's real. But, but I mean, losing to Machida, like I, I can by see, decision. Yeah, I know. I could see them letting you go if you were like. I don't know, losing to like, <laughs> I'm going to throw out names here. I mean, no disrespect to anyone. Uh, no, no, no. Let's not, let's not do that because I'm let's not, not, let's not even throw out a name, but we understand what you're saying. Like if I lost to like some lower class person, I'm going to throw out one name just to, to go on a oh, wild wow. example oh, here. Wow. Uh, I, I'm assuming you're not friends with this person. Uh, it's one thing if you got uh, KO'd by Hongman Choi. <laughs> oh, man. You're. No, I mean. But, you know, I could say, okay, well, you know, maybe. But, I mean, you were like. No, and that, but that's the thing. I only like fighting like really bad dudes and like dudes who I know can like, like that I know that I'm going to have to like either rise to like, I'm, I'm literally, if I don't, I feel like if I'm not fighting somebody who I feel can beat me. 
it doesn't do anything for me. It does nothing for me. But like nowadays, like fighters are smart. They want to, they're, they're, they're approaching it the way I should have approached it. I should have been fighting bums and stacking up my record and making a whole bunch of paydays, but I didn't get into fighting to stack up a record. I didn't get into fighting to get a bunch of paydays. I didn't get into fighting to become a star. I got into fighting to test myself against the best in the world and, li and live by the sword. I was willing to also die by the sword exactly and then that's the way i approach things like for example in acting i'm doing acting to become a leading man i'm not doing this to be supporting i'm not doing this to be like a day player i'm not doing this to be a to do to do anything else other than be a leading man i know what i want and like those are the objectives that i'm focusing on whenever i'm doing this so being that i understand that about myself i know the path that I need to pursue and any like deviation on that path is not only deceit to myself, it's deceit to the people around me and it's deceit to my mission and my objective. Just like in fighting, I was there to fight the best. Now, uh, there's another promotion. We talk a lot about the UFC and that, right? the name of Bellator. Uh, they seem to, I kind of like their strategy of offering maybe, uh, the gimmick fights, uh, you know, their new card. I don't know if you've heard of this. Yeah. Is uh, know, Shamrock against Gracie. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's still a legit fight. You know, they're both old timers. They they have, you know, they have, those two guys have a historical significance to our sport. Oh, absolutely. In fact, of the matter is with them fighting, I mean, there's no, I don't feel like there's any like, um, I don't feel there's anything wrong with them because like I'd explained earlier, the second those guys stop fighting, it's an internal death. It is like when I, like when I stopped, like put fighting on the shelf and I said, I'm going to concentrate solely on acting. A part of me died on that shelf. Like literally I still sit there and look at fighting and I think, man, maybe I should go back and do that, but I can't realistically go back and do that and continue to pursue acting. There's a saying, you cannot serve two gods. And it's so true. You can't, I, if I'm going to fight, acting is done. Right. If, if I, you know, if I pursue acting and it doesn't go anywhere, you know, and like nothing happens, then I'm done. Then I'll go do finance. But I mean, the thing is, is like I focus and, you know, I'll go trade futures, you know, cause that's what I'm studying anyways. And, but my point being, when you have an objective, you have to commit yourself a hundred percent to that objective. Cause if you don't, everything you do that does not lead you to that objective is another way that you are lying to yourself. You are telling yourself, Oh, I want like, for example, for you, I want to be a comedian. Oh, but I'm going to go uh, do this and I'm going to go uh, do that. That has nothing to do with comedy. Anything that you do, and maybe not so much for comedy, but, but anything that you do that like is a completely separate path, you know, to take you away from what you say your objective is. If you don't focus on, like Zulfi Ahmed, he's a guy who owns Bushibon down in Houston, Texas. He said, Sam, you do something 100% until it's done. If you don't do it like that, then you're not really doing what you say you're doing. You're doing everything else other than that. And that's what I think is the problem with a lot of people. Like they say they want to do stuff. Like how many times have you had the conversation with the, oh, you know what I'm going to do, bro? You know what I'm going to do, bro? It's called the bro talk. They give you the bro talk. It's like, hey, bro, you know what I want to do, bro? And I got this and I'm going to do that. Give me an example. Uh, I want to get into comedy. Bingo. Okay. So sure. You get that bro talk and they're like, man, I want to do it. And you're like, okay, okay, okay. Do it. And next thing you know, that oh, no, bro. Well, first I need to like, and then I need to like, and then, you know, they're not really about doing that because someone like you is 100% committed to that objective. I take it, right? Absolutely. Nothing else exists but that objective. 
A if you die, yes. If you die tomorrow, you knew you were chasing what you were really after. I can go to sleep tonight knowing I work as hard as I can at comedy on this podcast. So then knowing that you have this objective, that's your reality. That's truth. That's pure. That's real. <laughs> and I think a lot of people, what they do is like, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this also is to like, try to see what it's like going for various different objectives. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But once you center in on one and you say, that's what you want to do and you write it down on a piece of paper and it's like stuck on your wall and you're reading that piece of paper, like on your bathroom mirror, when you wake up in the morning, do it and nothing else should exist, but it, because everything in the world is set nine times out of 10. I've noticed this with the girls that I've dated with the people that I've been around, it's set towards like guiding us towards having a certain degree of stability. Like we want to have a continuous degree of stability within our life that we know we can depend on. That's what allows us to have children and have a house and be able to kind of like continue doing. But the thing is, is like, if you have one singular objective, you have to sacrifice that stability because stability means you have to typically fall in line with whatever the norm is, whether that's, Working a regular job and, you know, suffering what I like to call cubicle death, which is where you work in a cubicle all day, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. And, and, and don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that because cubicle death will pay you the most money and kill you the fastest. The reason why is because when you're in a cubicle working on a computer, sitting is bad for you. It was so bad that the Wall Street Journal actually said that nothing is more harmful to you than just sitting in your desk for hours on end because your body starts eating itself away and they had some type of study about, anyways, it's bad. Cubicle death, when you're inside a cubicle, you're inside a glorified coffin, mind you. I agree. You're just not dead, but you're in a coffin. You're not leaving that coffin for eight hours. And then at the end of that day, when the whole day is gone and your life has passed you by, you go back home. And you know, you might be married, you might have kids. You get that little bit of moment, which is when, and mind you, if I had kids, if I had children or if I'm married, I'll go to cubicle death every single time. Mind you, because once you have kids and you're married, you don't matter. All that matters is those children. So that being said, and so you don't want them to have to go through that. Right. But being that that is, you know, such a reality, like so many things in our society are pointed towards us being able to have that kind of continuous stability where we're able to be, where we're able to provide and we're able to, you know, to bring, you know, to bring home that, you know, that steady paycheck because you're trying to provide for your family. Cause as a man, that's what we do. That's our objective. We are there to provide for our family, period. If you don't have that, why would you try to make yourself suffer that? That doesn't make sense because by the time you make enough money to be able to enjoy life, life is gone. Your bones hurt. That desk has eaten your body away. Sitting in that chair has killed you. You're done. You're done. You're, you're done. I mean, at that point, you have no more life that you can legitimately live because all the life that you could have lived going out, surfing, rock climbing, hanging out with your friends, doing stand-up comedy, making your movies, like capturing your dream, really being within the element that makes you who you really wanted to be and who you are is gone down the drain to some company who cares less about you than they care about the lint in their pocket that Dana White didn't want to be. And fact of the matter is when they let you go, like they did to Enron, like all those employees at Enron, when they decided to screw them, all these people who were like, yeah, you know what? I went to college. I went to Harvard. I got a great degree. And now look at me. I'm here at cubicle death, but I'm making money. How many guys do you see substantiate their existence by saying, look at how much money I got? 
Oh my God. And you know what I see every time they pull out that water money? Look at how much I'm getting to give up my life that I can't get back. Look at how much I have to go ahead and say that I'm willing to be cool for five to 10 seconds when I buy drinks at the bar for my friends because I have given up this much of my life to try to be something that I'm not in front of people who don't care about me to try to go ahead and embrace something that I really never wanted to embrace in the first place. It doesn't make sense. But the thing is, is like back to my initial point. The world leads us to wanting that stability, that cubicle death that provides a steady paycheck. So there's a certain degree of control whenever you're able to go ahead, whenever you, whenever like say, say I'm a government, if my only concern is making sure that people are paid enough money so they can get home at six o'clock and take care of the kids and fall asleep and maybe have sex with their wife. Who's probably, you know, who's probably like sick and tired of, you know, listening to her husband's crap about like why he's not doing what he should be doing. And why he's constantly complaining about his job. Anyways, if that's all I have to worry about, do you see the degree of control that there is in cubicle death and that there is in like in reference to giving up such a significant, substantial portion of your life because your main concern is to take care of your children. And like I said, if I had children, I'm falling in line every single freaking time, every single time. Because if I have kids, I don't matter anymore. My kids are what matter, you know, and my wife and my family, that's what matters. Nothing else matters at that point. And yes, there are ways to get around it. You know, you can start a business, you can start doing it. And there's other ways to get around it. Don't think there's not. But 99.99999% of people are scared of doing even what you do. They would rather die than stand in front of an audience and just talk. Could you imagine having to take the risk of going out there to... St- what was the question? I don't even know what the answer is, let alone the question. Uh, well, we're and talking anyways, about... Anyways, anyways. But, but well, I, I mean, I think we this is a, uh, a good way to wrap it up, like... I think I got you on this by talking about guys like Henderson and and maybe Fedor. Oh yeah, that then. So let me go back now. I remember but can my I point. ask you a question? Yes. You're talking about cubicle death, and this is going to come out the wrong way because of the wording. Do you think in the, in MMA there's like octagon death from the standpoint? That of- was my point. Yes. Okay, I remember now. When you have to give up being so alive for such a short period of time in feeling that 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 surge of life rush through you where you're able to bring all your work and fruition into this one moment and now you have to shelf life that and you have to go into something completely different it's a scary world you're going into now because you don't know this world all you have known is competition all you have known is reaching for you know reaching for glory through you know through these endless amounts of hours that you put into training to become who you've wanted to become that's a scary place to be when i have to put on my shelf i'm done fighting right just like i had to do with acting okay fighting's on the shelf right now that was scary that was, I, I, I literally felt like the guy in Jaws who talks about, I've never been more scared in my life. I'll never don a life jacket again. Remember, he talks about the sharks. It's like Japanese submarines slam two torpedoes into our side chief. We were coming from Robert the Shaw, the that, great Robert yeah. Shaw. So when you put your career on the shelf like that and you have to leave it, you always want to run back to it. It's like the girlfriend who's super abusive to you. You always want to go back to her and you, you're like, you know, I can fix this. I can do this. And it's like, you always want to go back to it. But you know, once you're gone, you be gone and you stay gone and you have to. And you know that inside and a part of you dies on that shelf. I've been there. Uh, well, like, you know, Henderson got uh, KO in the first round by Belfort last Saturday. Take us through what his thoughts 
on that plane ride back home to America are. Should I keep doing this? I want to still... I mean, I know you can't get into his head. I don't know what he's thinking, but I know what I would be thinking. I would be asking myself, where did I mess up? What can I do better? I want that rematch. Henderson does not know death. He does not know that. He, he Remember when the UFC let him go the first time? Yeah, due to him. Like yeah. that. Strike like that. force. Like, okay, I'm gone. I'm out. See you later. He'll go fight somewhere else. I mean, because. Like a Bellator. Anywhere. I, I think, I don't know if it's Bellator or where, wherever else it is, but I think he's still going to be with the UFC because he is the, like, he's like, it's Ronda Rousey, like Conor McGregor. Like these are your top draws and like three, four or five, somewhere in there, Dan Henderson's right there. Cause anytime Henderson fights, I don't care when it is or what it is. I'm watching. I'm paying for the pay-per-view every single time. Oh, every absolutely. single. Th- I mean, he is America's literally Henderson is America's most loved fighter. Period. But I could, could see like Bellator giving him fights that could like not necessarily gimme fights, but like uh, you know they have those uh, you know like the co-main event on the Gracie Shamrock card is. Uh, I don't think Dana White and the UFC are going to let him go again because they see like he he's he's America's sweetheart. Oh, everybody absolutely. loves him. I mean, I just don't think I don't I think. I think they know it would be such a loss to let a guy like that go. Like, really? It's, it's just, it's not good for the sport. You know, it would say all the wrong things about the sport. I would rather pay to see him lose than, and I know he's a friend of yours, <laughs> but pay to watch, watch Mayweather. Mayweather win. No, no, I know, I know, I know. Don't, no trust disrespect. me, I understand. No, none taken. I understand. Trust me. My favorite heavyweight boxer of all time is Tex Cobb. Tex who- Cobb? Uh, wow. You know, now I'm older, a lot older than you are, but, uh, you know, I just loved watching that guy lose because uh, he, he never gave up. He, Live by the sword. Yeah. But he laughed at people like Larry Holmes. Hit me again. I don't care. No, you're good. So, Sam, this, I mean, I could talk to you forever, uh, but my goal with this podcast I hope it has been achieved, whatever that was. Well, it is, because uh, when I want to keep talking, that's when I know it's been achieved. Uh, But I want people to listen to this and go, I want to hear more from that guy. Because we barely got into your acting. So I'd like there to be a part two sooner than later. But uh, this is the part where we tell people where they can find you. Now, I know you're on Facebook, right? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. You can find me. Like, Go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and you can type in my name. It's Sam E. Hoger, that's S-A-M-E, like same, H-O-G-E-R, one word, at AOL.com. And you can put that in any of the search bars and you'll find me, you know? Sam E. Hoger at AOL.com. I'm really easy to find. Um, I'm on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. I'm all over the place. But I hope this, um, you know, I hope this has been informative for the people who are uh, choosing to pursue a career in fighting. I'm going to be very honest with you. Make sure you take into consideration everything that you're going to be giving up in reference to going after this. Um, to all the people who have contributed to our sport, I, w- I want to thank all of my opponents I w- because they have helped me become and discover you know, who I am. Is that you? Oh, yeah. And Twitter is at Sam Hoger. Yeah, there's no E. Oh, if, yeah. you're, uh, at tw- if you're on Twitter, it's just at Sam Hoger. S-A-M-H-O-G-E-R. And then Facebook, uh, it's, uh, I think, Sam Hoger as well. Uh, are you on Instagram? You know what? I actually am. But that one, I would believe you could find it at Sam. I think all of them, if you put my email address in there, you should be able to find me, though. You, um, know? I, you know, I tried. I think you're better off. I'm Far be it for me to tell you what to do. But for people who want to know where Sam is... Uh, 
uh, on Twitter, it's at Sam Hoger, S-A-M-H-O-G-E-R. Facebook, Sam Hoger. Uh, Instagram, uh, just search Sam Hoger, and I think it'll uh, he'll come up in the top choice. Uh, really, uh, Sam, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I know our relationship started off on the wrong foot <laughs> with me calling. I've ne- I got to be honest with you, Sam. I uh, L.A. comedy in 15 years has really uh, uh, gutted me emotionally. I've never felt so bad in my life when I called you Sam Stout. Uh, oh, don't worry. You, I, I, like I said, he's still a stud. Oh, I, I, felt, I felt good. He's, he's got the six pack I wish I had. But you got <laughs> like, you know, you guys kind of look alike, but I, I just in the heat of roast battle and the nervousness, right, right. I, I, I think someone to my left was drinking a stout beer and I just saw <laughs> I saw the word stout. I looked at you, Sam Stout. And, oh, uh, no worries. No worries. No but worries. But you could have been a dick. You could have said, hey, it's hoger you no, played along with it no. and then i thought jesus i hope this guy doesn't think i was clowning on him no so. no 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 i i figured if, if even if you were we're in a comedy place and I'm, I'm a good sport i'm a really good sport you know the um do you mind if i thank some people just play? oh my no we don't have to uh end i just uh no please thank whoever you okay need to. first of course thank god mom dad and then i want to thank uh all the people who've helped me throughout my career, Erica Duggar, Foster Volker, Sean Machado, Earl Rasmussen, uh, the whole team at Hoger Mixed Martial Arts, Joe Cavalera, Dana White, um, the Fertitas, uh, Craig Pelegian for making The Ultimate Fighter, all of the people who were on the show, um, all of my sponsors that I have had throughout my career. Um, now currently all my... Um, all my uh, people that I'm involved with in reference to the acting community. And uh, I want to also thank you for having me on this podcast. You know, I had a great time here. I hope this was a, I hope this was very informative. And if you, like I said, if you are looking to do fighting or if you're looking to put your children into fighting, please really consider the repercussions. And I recommend if you're going to start your kids in any martial arts, start them in karate for the discipline and then take them into jujitsu if they choose to go down that path, but I really recommend karate because the emphasis on discipline is what I think allows a lot of these children who do the martial arts to achieve great things. And that's, you know, I can't say it any better than that. Uh, Sam's been an awesome guest. We're going to have a part two. Uh, we didn't even get into, the, you know, some of the part two topics will be Sam's acting career. Oh, that's uh, a mess. <laughs> concussions. Uh, not, that's a mess. Yeah. Not that you've had, but, uh, had a few. you know, uh, I know we touched a little bit uh, on performance enhancing uh, vitamins, uh, you know, where the UFC's headed, uh, you know, it, it, is it, uh, let's leave a teaser uh, on this. Uh, now, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. I always thought pro wrestling was better when the WWE had competition like WCW. Right. Competition breeds excellence. I believe in that. It forces them. Uh, right now, I don't know if Bellator is considered competition. Do you think, is it possible? And don't give a big answer because I want this to be on part two. But do you think in the fantasy world that there is a promotion out there, maybe not even currently that's uh, in existence, that could somehow compete with the UFC on a global basis. Bellator has the potential to do that, but realistically, Dana White put it best. When uh, when he was uh, doing an interview, I believe, with um, some magazine, he said, all of these little promotions that are happening out there are not my competition. Uh, 
I'm competing against the NFL. I'm competing against the NBA. I'm competing against Major League Basketball. I'm not competing with podunk promotion out of the middle of nowhere. Be it as it may, I think right now it is in the best interest of most promotions to see themselves as the next potential pride because they can become that competition. But realistically right now, there is no competition. Right. And that, I, and, and mind you, it's there, is there, is there another, how did the XFL do against the NFL? Tell me about that. There's competition. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes UFC forces us to watch some cards that are not forces, but, uh, you know, like when the Ultimate Fighter popped on after your season, you know, every card was great. You know, you had guys on the prelims who should have been on the main event. And now it's almost the reverse where you've got some guys finding on the main card who, who might not be ready. But uh, that's for part two. Sam Hogan. I need you the- to remember one thing. At the end of the day, when you're watching a fight, it doesn't matter where the promotion is that it's happening. If you guys want to watch, remember, at the end of the day, you're, oh, you're watching two men who are testing themselves and giving you everything they have to embrace the reality that the moment can only provide. That being said, it doesn't matter what promotion that is. And that's what I think people fail to see because the intelligent people will can see through the glitz and the glamour and be like, at the end of the day, I want to see what happens with these two individuals in the ring. I don't care about all this fluff. If you want to see a great fight, look at Melvin Manhoff when he fought against Cyborg. The first time over in the UK. And like I said, the people who are educated, they understand it doesn't matter where, what promotion it happens in. It could be happening in somebody's backyard. It's the test of two men or women that really allow us to appreciate and see the better part of ourselves when we see what they're able to achieve through their hard work. All right. Now, speaking of women... I want you to give a one-word answer. Oh, my gosh. Is Cyborg the woman, Christine Cyborg, the woman to defeat Ronda Rousey? One-word answer. Maybe. Guys, Sam Hoger, you know this has been inappropriate, Earl. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave a review on iTunes. This has been... I got to be honest. I've had some great guests on this show. Stephen Piercy, my favorite singer of all time from Rat, was awesome. Bobby Rock, Fred Corey, the drummers uh, that have provided the soundtrack to my life were amazing guests. A lot of amazing guests. This might be the funnest uh, interview I've done because uh, I love MMA. I love UFC. And uh, Sam Hoger was a big part of why I got rejuvenated into watching it. So please become fans of Sam Hoger. And we will see you on the information superhighway. It's been a pleasure being here guys. And, um, you know, I look forward to, uh, I love, Hey, I also, I'm going to be having a morning workout show that I'm going to be producing here that I'm going to be putting out soon. If you want to wake up with Sam Hoger every morning, we're going to be doing some like basic MMA things, some stretches, some punches, some warming up. It's going to be like a 15 minute warm up that you can do every morning. As soon as you roll out of bed, just turn on your computer, put it on the screen. It's going to be coming out here soon. Look out for it. And, uh, like I said, where do people look out for that? Uh, will it be on YouTube? Or? I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start by putting it on Facebook and YouTube, and then I'm gonna put it on my own website. But you know, I'm 
I mean, it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a great way for us to wake up in the morning and, you know, just get ourselves moving. So for those of us who do have to go to the cubicle, you know, and do have to provide for our families and do have to do those things, I think this will be a good way for you to feel good about what you're doing because you're starting your day off on the right foot right before you get your coffee. So, um, and do you have a website? Uh, no, I don't. Not now. No, I just, I communicate with everybody through Facebook and MySpace or MySpace. That's, that's old. Wow, that's Facebook, old Facebook and Twitter. Were you on LinkedIn too? <laughs> and no. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, you know, Sam Hoger loves people and people love Sam Hoger. So, I mean, I really, you know, I really want to see, uh, you know, I want, I hope, you know, I hope this thing, you know, helps people feel good when they start their day. And I think it'll be a really a uh, good addition. So, so look for that on Sam's Facebook page coming soon and really follow him on Twitter and Instagram. He's, he's been an amazing guest and he was nice enough to take the time out of his busy schedule to uh, come to West Hollywood and do this. It's, it's not as easy as you think people to get people to come down here. So I appreciate it when they do. And uh, this will be out on Monday. And I thank Sam again for doing this. And uh, by the way, Bellator in February, it's uh, Gracie Shamrock and probably the fight I'm more interested in, Kimbo Slice against Dada 5000. Oh, buddy, uh, that'll be exciting. Get into that street fighting uh, <laughs> part of the show. So uh, thank you guys for the support and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah.